Good morning. Thank you very much for getting up early. I'm Julia Hobsbawm from Editorial Intelligence. I should tell you, uh, as if you, in case it affects the way you make remarks later, that this event is being podcast and we have um, rather a large following of people who download these podcasts. So don't say you were not warned when it comes to your turn to contribute. Uh, those of you who've been to an event like this before, possibly here, knows that we have a very happy association with the CAS Business School. We also have a very happy association from time to time with the Financial Times. In fact, the last time Editorial Intelligence, the CAS Business School and the FT were partnered was in a very different venue a couple of weeks ago in the wilds of Port Merion, putting on an event about individuality in a mass age with the... Uh, the likes of Stefan Stern and Simon Sharma, and it was a very good mix. So we're very grateful to the Financial Times and to CAS. We're also grateful to the City of London Corporation, again with whom we've had a previous association, and two new uh, partners for us today, the Federation of Small Businesses and Barclays. So what are these events for those of you who haven't been? Well, they are an opportunity to hear from some of the expert players in media, academia, and the policy worlds on key issues of the day and to invite key individuals to make their remarks. We also have uh, published for the first time today, and you should have it in your hand, but we have plenty if you don't, a small piece of analysis from Editorial Intelligence's really rather huge archive now of all the comment published on absolutely everything in the UK and we've done what we call is a snapshot topic tracker on the way the Financial Times has unsurprisingly correctly predicted and analysed uh, the credit crunch uh, well ahead of the game and on that note I'm about to hand over to Lionel Barber to chair. Um, Lionel Barber has presided over the largest ever year-on-year -year increase at the Financial Times, who he joined at the end of 2005. Between himself and the Financial Times, which is the incumbent newspaper of the year three times over, he and they have won over 10 awards. He has co-authored and uh, contributed to over 10 books. Before he took over at the helm of the Financial Times and built it, arguably from a newspaper brand into a global news brand. I gather that FT.com has just passed its million mark for registered users. Uh, he was the US editor of the Financial Times. So I'm going to pass over to Lionel with the immortal words, turn your mobile phones off. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Julian, I'm not quite to say what, sure what to say after that encomium other than what a great pleasure it is to be here rather than before the Treasury Select Committee. <laughs> um, uh, the Financial Times is really delighted to um, be a co-sponsor of these debates uh, with Barclays City of London Corporation and the Federation of Small Businesses. Um, I am going to ask each panelist to speak for five minutes only. Um, if not, I will have to abandon my practice of light touch moderation. <laughs> so with that, let's, let's introduce the first speaker, Stuart Fraser, who is the Chairman of Policy and Resources Committee of the City of London on our topic, our issue du jour, 
recession, real economy and recovery. Thank you very much, uh, Arnold. And uh, as I've only got five minutes, I'll skip the intro. Um, it's interesting, the three R's, because it contains the first word, recession. And I must admit, I'm very pleased we can now talk about that. Six months ago, I was not allowed even to mention it. Um, but now it seems to be perfectly okay, and even the odd word depression comes in. Um, so anyway, we know we are in it. Uh, we don't know how long it's going to last. We don't know how deep it's going to be. For the first time in uh, my 40 years in the city, I now find a, a real degree of unanimity amongst the economists I talk to. All of them say, I don't know. Um, and, I, and indeed, the figures we're getting out are startling. I mean, G, the contraction in GDP in certain countries, Japanese exports down 50%, you know, car sales down 35 These are huge numbers. And I don't think anybody has actually experienced that in the past, or certainly not this side of the war. And of course, some countries, uh, it is a huge strain on. I mean, the, the, we, we think we're in trouble here, but other countries are also in deep trouble. Um, and we're seeing uh, some of them very near to collapse. Um, so where are we now? Well, we've gone through the sort of high emotion, as I call it. First of all, the denial phase that, um, in fact, this isn't going to affect us. We've got a robust economy, uh, etc. Um, and we're now obviously into the realisation phase uh, that this is serious, uh, in fact, very serious. Um, and that's engendered, of course, the third phase, which is the anger phase. So how did this happen? I mean, we were promised this couldn't happen, and it's happened. Um, the frustration phase, phase, the stimulus, all these billions going in, nothing appears to have happened. And of course, the ongoing fears of, of either a possible collapse or indeed the legacy effect of the huge debts that are being built up and we're mortgaging the grandchildren. Um, but I must admit there is a degree of loss of perspective in some of this. Um, I think the global economy is expected to decline perhaps by 2% this year. That compares to a decline of some 20% in advanced countries during the depression between 1929 and 32. So when we use the word depression, we should be careful. Frankly, it's not going to, at least in this country or America or Europe, lead to death, starvation and destruction. Uh, sometimes when you read the papers, you think we're heading that way. Uh, and also put in perspective, in the past uh, 80 years, we've had two world wars, we've had depression, hyperinflation, yet we've survived and we've ultimately prospered. And of course, regaining fiscal probity and balancing the books is achievable, but it will take quite a number of years. I think we're now moving to the phase where, quite frankly, the time for banker bashing is coming to an end. It's been great fun. Put them all in the stocks, get the rotten tomatoes, uh, and hurl them at them. And it's, it's been just great fun. Um, but uh, it, it misses the point. It's, it's, it's almost verging on the childish now. Banks actually did play a large part, which they'll admit to. But a hell of a lot of other people are equally guilty. Uh, even to those that would uh, assume that they could continue to consume forever and continue to sort of borrow on their mortgages and everything else like this. Everybody has got a play in this one. Um, and indeed, I think you're seeing now uh, a questioning, really, if you watched Lord Turner yesterday in the, in the select committee, uh, the academics are being questioned about how they said, hmm, this couldn't happen, central banks who didn't really intervene, and politicians who quite liked it. 
47 quarters of uninterrupted growth, etc. Uh, and it's also, I think, uh, if, any of, if you haven't read it yet, Lord Turner's speech on regulation uh, is an absolute must. It is brilliantly done and, and clearly identifies where the problems are essentially in credit markets and the way forward. Of course, the theory of decoupling, another favourite one, um, that the rest of the world would decouple, India and China and everybody else. Uh, I always remember somebody saying to me that in really hard times, correlation goes to one. And I think that's probably absolutely right. So there's no such thing as decoupling in that sense. And of course, the regulatory side, again, Lord Turner yesterday was saying essentially that there was too much focus on structures, the pipework of businesses, and they were not really given the task of looking at the business plan or considering systematic risk. So moving forward, what are we going to do? Well, um, certainly in the European Union, there has to be a coming together, a more common approach. It's still very factional still very nationalistic, um, and uh, we need to get together. There's real problems in the Eurozone, as you know, with certain of the countries in trouble, um, certainly the newer members, uh, areas like Greece and Spain and Italy. Um, so there needs to be uh, a coming together there. Um, and we need, obviously, global cooperation through G20 probably is the best way forward. Um, we've got the London Summit coming up. Um, and we have to work with Americans, with the USA, uh, we're, we're actually sort of sandwiched in the middle between, on the one side, the European bloc and the, f the free trade bloc of America on the other side, and we do need to bring the two together. Um, we've certainly got to fight protectionism uh, with all the effort we can do, both financial and regulatory protectionism and trade protectionism. I think everybody would agree this would be a disastrous route for us to go through. What are our objectives, City of London? Well, it's to ensure that London remains competitive in a global environment. We talk to the politicians all the time, the trade bodies, businesses, and we are doing work on forming a new promotional body which covers all of the financial services in the United Kingdom. Um, we obviously need to continue to encourage infrastructure spending, our major one being Crossrail. You saw in today's paper, the FT, that somebody's calling for £90 billion worth of uh, new uh, infrastructure spending to try and revive the economy. Keynes is back in big fashion. I mean, you know. Um, and we need, obviously, to encourage uh, more investment in our skills base, uh, academies and areas like this that we, we sponsor, and I think that's a very important long term. And we have to continue to improve the London offering. London, London is a great place to be, it's a great place to live, great place to do business, very open, and we need to keep that that way. Financial services as such will contract, there's no doubt about that. But you have to bear in mind that it will remain a very large part of the UK GDP. So if anybody wants to feel that we're going to get our just desserts and everything else like this, and you'll see the collapse in that, believe you me, it would be very, very bad for the UK economy. There are no other sectors out there that could take up the reins in any, anything other than the long term. And of course, I think I will guarantee you that at some point in the future, this will be just a bad memory. Uh, although it might, may take a generation or two to expunge it from our consciousness, we will eventually do that. And when we've done that, we'll find a new game to play. Thank you. Thank you, Stuart. Um, have you told Robert Peston that it's time to stop banker bashing? <laughs> um, we have a banker here, uh, just next door. Catherine French, Customer Services Director of Barclays UK Retail Banking. Over to you, Catherine. Thank you, Lionel, and thank you, Stuart, for not bringing any small toes uh, this morning. It's on the other side. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get ready for them. Um, when I began thinking about what I wanted to say today, 
Uh, like many of you, I probably thought about the three R's, and it meant something rather different uh, than what we're talking about this morning. It meant the traditional reading, writing, and arithmetic. And funny enough, only last week I was explaining to my children what reading, writing, and arithmetic was. They weren't having any of it, really, and said, oh, more English and maths, Mum. But they do understand recession and they do understand recovery, which is why I do actually want to say my introductory remarks, because I think it does show the severity of what we're going through, that my 10-year-old daughter is talking to me about recession. And rather sweetly, she offered to halve her pocket money. So I don't know if actually that's what real economy means to a 10-year-old. I hasten to add, even nasty banker as I am, I let her keep her pocket money. Um, but more seriously, the events of the past 12 months have shaken us all, and not just the financial sector. Confidence in the banking sector remains under very serious pressure. As customer services director, I speak to Barclays customers every day, and I hear and understand our customers' concerns. They're concerned about bonus payments, the security of their savings, and the availability of credit. And we do hear those messages. But in the midst of all this turmoil, uh, to Stuart's point, we do need some proportionality we need to remember that banks like Barclays are open for business. It's really, really important to remember that, and that we are supporting millions of customers, both personal and business, every day. One of the misconceptions which I constantly have to address is clearly that banks are not lending. But the fact is that for Barclays in 2009, we will lend more to SMEs than we did in 2008, a staggering $16.5 billion. And that's also true for larger business. And approval rates for loans are over 90%. Now, to, a, to our critics, those are figures which are really, really easily dismissed. But the fact is, and we have to focus on this, that this is real money going into the real economy. And it's money that businesses need to help them through these tough economic conditions and through the coming months and year. My colleagues and I have been heavily criticised in recent months for the collapse of businesses or for mortgage repossessions. But again, the fact is that banks rarely benefit in these circumstances. We in fact go to huge lengths to ensure that businesses stay in businesses and customers stay in their homes. But again, the harsh fact is that some business models are unsustainable and it is not in our shareholders or the economy's interest to support unsustainable business models. It's not just businesses that need our help, it's personal customers too. We fully understand, as I said earlier, that personal customers do have their concerns. And at Barclays, we're responding to that. We've set up specialist teams to help support customers better manage their money and to give them guidance on their mortgages. We've been proactively ringing customers who are showing signs of financial difficulties to see how we can help. And that proactivity has been hugely welcomed by our customers. There's a lot of work going on. And I think overall it shows how Barclays' business model has been the right one as we headed into the recession. We have a low-risk mortgage business. Our average residential loan to value in December last year was just 39%. And as a result, our share of the net lending market rose from just under 8% to 35% in 2008. And in all the talk about repossessions, Barclays only repossessed 303 houses in the first nine months of 2008. That compares to 30,000 for the sector as a whole. Just to touch on a couple of topics which I'm sure we'll come to on the debate. 
One thing that does give me huge encouragement in these difficult times is the support the government is taking to support the sector, steps which we're working with them very closely on, but they do take time to execute, and the loan guarantee scheme for SMEs is a really good example of that. This government intervention is unprecedented, and it needs to be recognised. I'd also like to turn very briefly to regulation, a subject that, strangely enough, is quite close to my heart because I'm actually an ex-regulator. Um, we all know that the relationship and responsibilities of banks and regulatory authorities is under intense scrutiny. The new Banking Act is coming into law. There's the House of Commons Treasury Select Committee. The reports go on and on. The regulatory world will be very different going forward, very different from coming years, and we understand that. As others have said, it's the end of light-touch regulation. We do understand that, and we're working very hard with our regulators around the world to help shape the new environment. But I think it's important that we have coordinated regulation and we don't have change just for change's sake. We need to engender confidence in the sector. That's above all what we need to achieve. So just to conclude, I believe banks have a really key role to play in supporting our customers through this recession and into the recovery. We need to work hard collectively to give the customers the breathing space they need. Our strategies need to be clear to our customers, to our shareholders, and to stakeholders like you. And in Barclays' case, that's to have a low-risk and responsible attitude to lending. We need to work together to implement the measures the government's introduced to support the economy. Now, I'm not unrealistic enough to think that a banker would win a popularity contest, so hopefully not too many tomatoes. And I also acknowledge that bankers have to share the blame for causing a recession. Barclays has said that publicly. But I think we need to move forward and we need to play our part in emerging from the recession. Banks have been around for hundreds of years and they will continue to be around. In Barclays' case, that's more than 300 years. And so there, for me, that means being there for our customers through the recovery. Thank you. Thanks, Catherine. And now we're, we're now going to get a report from the front line, um, John Wright, who is the chairman of the Federation of Small Business. Thank you very much for the opportunity to speak to you this morning. I think that it's interesting that uh, uh, small businesses didn't seem to be very high on the agenda of anybody uh, until this uh, real recession, depression, call it what you like, came about. Uh, now uh, that we have been for some, certainly since September, a flavour of the month because people have long last have realised how important small businesses are to the economy of the country. Um, we represent um, the largest um, we're, we're the largest business organization and we have about 215,000 small business members. And um, small firms are facing some very difficult challenges. Uh, during um, the recession, we're losing around about 100 small businesses a day. Um, but then that sounds very depressing. But what we have to look at also is that um, in December 2007, uh, the uh, Registrar of Companies registered 20,000 new companies, small business companies. Um, in December 2008, it was um, uh, 21,000, which is quite interesting that there was an increase. Um, and they face uh, the difficulties that they face are higher priced or more particularly non-existent credit. Uh, fewer people are spending and payments are taking longer to get in. And if you've ever run a small business, and I run two, 
the important thing to a small business is cash flow. They operate on relatively small margins and they need that money back in in about 10 to 12 weeks. Otherwise, if they don't get any money in, then that business is really in a perilous state. Normally, they can hang on in there because they usually have an, a guaranteed overdraft or a sufficient loan from the bank to carry them over these difficult humps. The problem is now that many of our members have had those overdrafts either reduced or, in some cases, the threat to remove them. And uh, we've had some classic cases. Now, I'm not necessarily um, uh, bashing the banks. They've got problems of their own. Um, but obviously, um, the thing that comes to the fore in the main are these big business closures, um, the big well-known firms that have uh, takes the media coverage. But uh, many small firms, which our employers are closing down each day, and when you think about 59% of private sector employment is in small businesses, then it is a big worrying factor for the country. Um, the average number of employees in a small business, about 90% of our 4.5 million small businesses, is about 10, which doesn't seem many. But then if you multiply that, it doesn't take long when you've got 100 businesses a day times by 10. That's a large chunk. And if that was announced on a day, people would say, my goodness me, that's a large number of people who are going to lose their jobs. So we must remember that um, many small and medium-sized firms have, re have seen recessions in the past come and go. Uh, and they have the experience to tackle the problems, many of them. Uh, and they make those necessary changes to continue to thrive. The one good thing about small businesses is that they are innovative, they're flexible, and they can move quickly if there's an opportunity that they can take, unlike some of the larger companies, which it might take three months to actually implement changes. But we're, we're now experiencing a, a different type of recession from the previous recessions, and that's the problem. It's a global credit crunch. Um, and, you know, we've had the horror stories of banks not wanting to lend to banks. Uh, and, and, and if they don't want to lend to banks, well, and they don't trust each other, well, certainly, you know, are they very keen to lend to small businesses uh, when they're operating quite often on a computer model that's determined centrally? Um, I think small firms who would survive a recession by accessing short to mid-term finance, but they're finding this increasingly difficult, um, and to some extent, banks are still not playing the ball. Uh, but... On the other hand, I agree with some of the earlier speakers, I think the time for bashing banks is, is over. Um, we now need to deal with the problem, and we all have a responsibility. We all have extended credit on credit cards, extended credit in relation to equity in your house, etc. Uh, so we all have to now learn to act in a more reasonable and responsible manner, and that's the same with the banks. So we're not expecting small businesses that are not viable to be able to obtain money from banks. But we are concerned about those very, very good businesses that do have a cash flow problem, and they may well disappear when we can't afford to let them disappear. We're, uh, we've been scoping and pushing policies that will help the SME community 
um, and in areas such as access to finance and procurement and job retention and creation. And we have put forward many suggestions, which we've been very pleased that the government have actually taken on board some of our recommendations, which have been helpful. Some of these short-term policies that the government need to implement quickly to halt uh, a dangerous slump, which we are turning into something much worse. So we need some policies such as setting up um, this government guaranteed fund, but getting the money out to the businesses. Um, cutting uh, regulations. We don't, for goodness sake, want any more regulations. We have enough to cope with. Uh, when you're bearing in mind that in my business, I'm the health and safety expert, I'm the marketing expert, I'm the employment law expert, I am the cleaner, I am everybody else and the tea maker, and also we have to actually do business as well. That's the real situation. Many of our members are working 60, 70 hours a week for sometimes a profit margin of overall just giving them a living wage. And they've also put their house on the line. And I think a lot of people don't realise that, that when you actually go into business, the setup costs are sort of about five times the actual cost of running the business. But if you lose that, then it takes five times as much money to set up a new business. Uh, and those businesses who are putting their houses on the line, putting their pensions on the line, we have members who have actually cashed in their pensions to keep their businesses going. I think a lot of people don't realise the risks that small businesses run in trying to keep businesses going. So we need, uh, some, some policies need to be long-term. Um, I think we need a new enterprise allowance scheme. In the last uh, major recession in the early 80s, um, when there was a government enterprise scheme to assist those people who perhaps had been made redundant and wanted to start businesses. That's how I started my, my small business. I was made redundant, and uh, I'd been wanting to be made redundant. Sounds daft, that, doesn't it? But I wanted to be made redundant because I want somebody to you know, kick me up the backside to get out of my comfort, comfort zone of getting a cheque at the end of the, every month and actually take the risk, because I'd always wanted to run my own business. And so when I got that opportunity, I took it. That was for my redundancy. But in the early 80s, there was the Small Firms um, Enterprise Scheme, and that created 191,000 new businesses. So we want the government to think about these as a long-term solution, because things are going to be different, ultimately, when we come out. We will come out of this recession. And I'm quite optimistic, because there will be new opportunities. And we've already had some new businesses created that have taken advantage of the actual recession. And that will happen. So we now need to engage both the government, the opposition, um, the local authorities and tell them now what they can do to help those viable small businesses to keep going. Thank you very much. Thanks, John. Uh, I'm now going to hand over to the next speaker as uh, banking expert, Dr. Alistair Milne from the Cass Business School. You've got five minutes. Thank you. Yes, I'm the uh, member of the home team. Uh, I, I've really described myself as a banking economist. I've been, I was kind of rather worriedly reflecting the other day that it's now 30 years, or it will be later this uh, summer, 30 years since I passed my first economics degree. Um, time passes very quickly. Uh, and I've moved over my career out of macroeconomics and eventually to a specialisation in banking. I, I think what I'd like to do is carry the flag for the economists, who often sometimes get a bad press, not as bad as, not as, bad as bankers, but... Uh, to make really three points about uh, the recession, the real economy and recovery. And I, I, I say this not just because I'm proud of my profession and my training, but I think that economics is useful in this sort of circumstance because it's a framework of thinking. Um, I'm not saying that all economists agree, but 
more than I think any other discipline, it gives us, if you like, the kind of roadmap that may help us think sensibly uh, about uh, the way forward. And I think that leads me to three points. One, one I'm afraid a bit pessimistic. We, we had sort of uh, predictions of 2% decline in uh, output in the advanced countries, I think, in um, th this year. That, that would seem to me to be rather optimistic. I think if the official forecasts of the IMF and so on are quite political, and they're not allowed to say what they really think. So I, you know, the, it, it's clear that things are going to get a, quite a bit worse before they get better. So no one should be imagining we're at the bottom of, of recession yet. That's the um, sort of economist gloom. I get to get that over with. In terms of the other issues, though, where I think economics gives a much more positive contribution, um, I think there's really not enough discussion precisely on the real economic issues. I, I think the, 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 the notable exception in terms of public um, discussion or public prominence would be Martin Wolf, uh, Lionel's colleague at the Financial Times. But if I was to give a short list of um, what's going to be the foundations of economic recovery, um, it's not going to be a short-term fiscal boost. Um, it's going to be, importantly and critically, um, increasing consumer business and government expenditure in what previously had been the surplus economies of the world, the current account surplus um, exporting. So it's, we've got to look to Germany, notably, because we can have a, you know, a dialogue with them. Japan, China will be more difficult because they're still politically very immature. But we're not going to get recovery through a fiscal boost in uh, a sustainable recovery through fiscal boosts in countries like the US and the UK. And that's, that's something on which every, every economist, there's going to be no disagreement on, on that. There has to be rebalancing of the world economy to carry it forward. And that should be the foundation of debate at the G20 meeting uh, in the, in, here in London on April the 2nd. I'm, I'm not too sure where they'll confront those issues because there are a lot of you know, conflicts of interest and differences of opinion. Equally, it's going to be application of information and scientific technologies across the globe to improve productivity. There is still immense potential for using IT to continue long-term sustainable growth. It's fashionable to say it should be green growth, but it's certainly economising on the use of resources. Again, I see rather little debate about that. Now, somewhat more personal view, but I'd say one of the things we've learned from this, it's not, it's not about failure of regulation, it's more about the weaknesses of markets. Markets are blind. You know, they're not, um, markets are not the place where you design a roadmap or you, you think about where exactly are we all collectively going in 5, 10, 15, 50 years. Markets are very good at taking advantage of the incremental steps, whether it's three months, six months, or a couple of years ahead, taking advantage, taking profit. They're very good at driving, driving down costs, improving efficiency. Um, I think in one sense, if I had to give a, a sort of a Philip to the, the, the French way of thinking, I would say that this is now a time more than any other for indicative planning. We need a role for government, which I've I've really sadly not seen from either the US or the UK, which is helping us discuss where we are all going over the next 10 or 15 years. But it's something which all the professional economists I engage with would, you know, pretty much unanimous on. We need to be thinking about those long-term issues in order to provide the stable platform for recovery. Um, I think the third, uh, and th here there's a bit more debate amongst the prof profession, but I think... Um, that my third and if not right final point is that 
we are becoming sucked far too much uh, in the media, and the, the Financial Times is, is an exception, but I would say only a partial exception, into the blame game, the, the never again, the you know, let's fix regulations so that banks and bankers don't repeat the mistakes that they've just made. Now, why do I say we're sucked into that? There's a fascinating debate, um, and I know I've been lucky enough to be represented on several occasions on the Economist Forum in the Financial Times. On one side of this debate, I've had some um, very enjoyable arguments with, with, uh, and debates with Martin Wolf. And it's really about the nature of this entire downturn. The, the view, if you read most of the media, is, oh, this is all to do with excessive risk-taking, it's mistakes by... By, by bankers' uncontrolled greed. Of course, that, that's been an important element. But actually, in my judgment, and I'm, I'm not going to be able to justify this fully today, uh, but it's not just my judgment, it's the judgment of many professional economists. Um, I mean, I happen to have a book that will be published later this year. And, you know, that's my only... My only <laughs> so that's my only little bit of it. If you want to read it at length, I'm, I'm happy to say there's a web pages as well. But let, let me just, if I if I'm not at risk of going over my five minutes, the, 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 key, the key interaction, which I think just simply isn't emphasised uh, enough, is what, I'm going to use one of, one of those horrible economics jargons words, um, endogenous risk is the one, the favourite. I know we talk in impenetrable jargon, and it's the fault of our profession more than almost any other that we talk just to each other and not to the outside world. What, the point is that... Um, in a situation such as we're in today, uh, we very, the economic situation re relies to an extraordinary extent on expectations and on confidence. Um, it's what businesses, what banks, and indeed what government, expectations we have about the future, which drive more than anything else our decisions and the attitudes we take today. They drive market prices. Why are share prices so low? It's concern about the future. But that is self-fulfilling. If you get pessimistic enough, you can actually create the very collapse that, you, um, that you're scared of in the first place. Now, there are, when, you, when you look in detail, as I, as a banking economist, look in detail, I say, what's the one thing that caused this crisis? Actually, it's something very simple. It wasn't so much risk mistakes on the part of the banks. It was simply borrowing short and lending long, something which, of course, banks are supposed to do, but they took to far too great an extreme. They suddenly realised that collectively, that there was a, I can go into technicalities, there was an issue they thought they had liquid assets and therefore they could sell these liquid assets, but actually they're only being traded amongst bankers. So when, when banks as a group tried to sell off some of this stuff, they suddenly discovered, hang on, there's nobody but us, the bankers, buying this stuff and we're stuck with this. This is collectively, in terms of the system, this is a major risk. The conclusion, I think, then is pretty obvious. We need to do the reverse of banker bashing, um, we need to provide, and I think we collectively, and that means government taking the lead, we need to provide the long-term funding to deal with the maturity mismatch problem in the banking's books. Um, it, that's the entire rationale for these insurance guarantees that um, are being announced right now by the UK government. There are several different ways of doing it. Again, there are many, many debates amongst professional <laughs> economists on the Economist Forum, if not so much in the main pages, which discuss exactly how to go about doing this. But again, I think there is a, there's a balance of opinion. Martin Wolf will emphasise much more the fundamental structural problems. Myself, Ricardo Caballero, 
um, Charlie Calamiris and others would emphasise much more the short-term endogenous risk. But there's a clear framework for going forward. And I personally, I'm extremely disappointed with the UK political system, with the Treasury and Civil Service Committee, which I think has been pursuing, uh, to me, ridiculous agenda of, of blame, instead of taking the function of saying, what are the solutions? Okay, Alistair, thank you very much indeed. My job is to corral the, corral the debate, but on the other hand, after that swinging attack on journalism and uh, uh, from The Economist to my left here, I feel like I have to say that one of my favourite items that we commissioned uh, last year was a long feature in which we selected which economists had done well in predicting the crisis. And needless to say, Alistair May didn't make the cut. <laughs> so I'm sorry about that, Alistair. <laughs> we'll try and get you next uh, recession. But the fun- of course, the real, the real problem here was that the economists, like everybody else, and in that sense economists are normal, is everybody got a piece of the picture, a piece of the puzzle. Um, but we can talk a bit about more about that later. Now, I'm going to open up the discussion in just a minute, but I think it's important to establish a framework, an intellectual framework. Um, obviously, the most dangerous aspect of this crisis is it's, it's global. It affects the Russian oligarchs, the sheikhs in Dubai, the city of London, Japan, terrible figures. We, we mustn't forget Asia. And we all know about the epicenter of the crisis in America. But we also know that we are now in a recession with a broken banking system. And that clearly was not the case in 81. It's not been the case. And that's what what makes this combination so dangerous. So first question for the panel. Let's just get our definitions clear. Are we in a recession or are we in a depression? Or is there a risk of a depression? Yep. First, keep we're your in, answers very short. We're in a recession. Right. So we are in, in danger of a depression. And the problem is that nobody's got any historical context to put this in. And although there are examples of the depression in America, etc., the world is so different now. And this is why we're all floundering. Why De- define a depression just for, for us non-economists. Uh, well, that's a, yes, it is a difficult one, I guess, but probably it's a, it's a degree of contraction of GDP. And I would say, prob- I don't know, I would, I would guess you're talking about something like about 5 to, five to 10% contraction in GDP being a, a, a that. I, I've never seen a definition. I know what the recession is. Yeah, that's um, but fine. I don't know okay. what the depression is. So that's the, what's, the, what's the view from uh, the banks? Are we in a recession or flirting with depression? I think it's a recession, but it is proving or it is likely to go on for longer than we first thought. I'm not a historian. I'm not an economist. I'm not a banker. I just know that many of my members are depressed. Whether that's... <laughs> Whether that's a depression or a recession, I know that many of my members are in difficulty. I'll let the, uh, the clever people who should have known what was coming let me, know, uh, let me know whether it is a recession or a depression. Alistair? Uh, I think in terms of a bouncing ball, a recession is when the economy goes down and comes back up again. The danger of a recession is that you go down and you stay down. 
and I, and I think avoiding that, which is still a possibility, is, is very much a matter of government uh, policy and government responsibility. And a depression is the same as a slump, right? I, in, in my word, my jargon is it would be. I mean, the Great Depression of the US was to a very, and the world economy in the 1930s, was very much a policy error. Okay, great. Now we've got our definitions. Now we have our definitions straight and our, uh, the health code uh, clear. Let's, let's ask the next question. Why is it, given that there is a wall of money has hit the economy, we're looking at a budget deficit of... 10% of GDP this year, or near enough, why isn't it having an effect now, and might it start to have an effect sometime later this year? That's the, that's, that's the big debate. The problem is you can measure how much you put in. What you can't measure is how much is being destroyed. And there's a vast amount of wealth being destroyed out there, huge amounts. Uh, and totally dwarfs the amount of money that's being put in at the other end. And that's more than just in the equity markets. When oh, you talk yeah, we're about talking about property wealth. markets. Right. We're talking about, as you say, even if it's Russian oligarchs, you know, they're billionaires one day and they're bust the next. There is a huge amount of wealth destruction. And the size of the U.S. housing market, 10% decline in that, wipes out any tarp or anything else like that. So this, this is the big debate. Why isn't it happening? I think what economists hate is the fact this thing called animal spirits because they can't predict them. You know, economists go nice, it's tubes and works like this. And the point is we're getting to a, a position now where we're trying to get people to spend our way out of this recession. And people are saying is, we're in a recession. Why do I want to spend? Right. Well, you know, so th this is the problem we're in now. I think it might be something called the Ricardo effect, but uh, I think that's where the position is now. And the danger is, of course, that we will save more and more and more. Your daughter should be—you should be doubling her pocket okay. money, not. Uh, <laughs> Catherine, when, why isn't it having an effect? These measures, or when might they take an effect? Well, I think time is very important. But if you bring it back to customers. Um, there, the fact is there is a, a retraction in demand on both the business side and the personal side. You are just not seeing people going out and spending on their credit cards. The first-time buyer market is not really moving at all. That's what needs to get going. So it will take time for the confidence to flow through. I wish I had a magic ball and say it will start in, in three months' time. I think the fact is we just don't know. And it's that confidence in both business and the personal sector that we need to restore. And when will we know that something is happening, that approximating a green shoot? I think a good one for me would be the first-time buyer market once that starts coming through. John? Yeah, I think that um, we've seen tremendous wealth destruction. Um, shares you know, going down, billionaires losing their money, um, uh, property values dropping down. And then we say, well, why is things just continuing uh, out there? And why are people just carrying on living? Because the vast majority of us are not billionaires. We, a vast majority of my members don't hold tremendous number of shares in lots and lots of companies. Um, yes, their property values have gone down, but they went up dramatically, and therefore they still have their property in some cases, unless they've lost it to the banks. Uh, but in, in most cases, life goes on, and they live in the real world. And I think to some extent... Uh, with the greatest respect, economists and uh, the city uh, and uh, sort of live in this uh, uh, bubble that um, values go up dramatically in companies and they can destroy a company overnight by just having a loss of confidence in a company. But actually, 
ordinary people just carry on with their lives. And yes, they're, they're living in the real world, and therefore they're not going to spend as much money because they get the pest and depression whereby, you know, they see this red arrow on BBC every day saying, oh, it's going to be dreadful, it's all doom and gloom, so don't spend your money. And so, you know, it's partly the media's fault, it's partly the, the city and in the way that they operate and finances generally throughout the world. So people who are living in the real world are saying, well, hang on, it's some... Um, I can't really see what's happening. I, I just want to come to the defence of my poor colleague, Robert <laughs> Peston, who's, who's actually done a very good job in reporting this story. But there we are. That's just the journalist speaking. John, was the VAT cut a good idea? Why not? It made no effect. It made more problem for our members than, in fact, it, it, it gave. You know, all our small businesses had to then recalculate at 2.5% off. So, you know, what good did that do? And does anybody on the panel think that the VAT cut was a good idea? Catherine? I don't think it was big enough to make a significant difference to Absolutely. the person in the street. Stuart? No. Over to the hermetically sealed economist. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm absolutely delighted as the, that we, we can go back to economist bashing, because economists don't matter too much for the real world. Bankers do. So if we stop banker bashing and start economist uh, bashing instead, that's, that's one green shoot of recovery. Um, what about the VAT cut? <laughs> the VAT. The, I, if I tackle the broader question, yeah, which I didn't please. have a chance to, which was, yes, why, aren't these, yeah, can, yeah. why aren't all these measures, VAT included, having an effect? Actually, I counter the premise. I think they've had a tremendous effect because without them, things would have been very much worse you, you, um, than they have been. There's a tendency, and this is not the journalist's fault, this is, I think, just human nature. There's a tendency always to think in terms of glowing future. And so a good outcome is when incomes are growing by, real incomes are growing by 3% a year, and we can all have lots of lovely holidays in the Caribbean. And, uh, you know, that's probably not, that's not the reality for the British economy going forward 20, 30 years. So what, what we simply want to see as success is a transition of our economy to a, a new structural basis. Great. Thank you very much indeed. Now we're going to <clears throat> move to our interactive phase and take questions from the audience. Could you just say who you are and please try to keep your question short? Uh, David Sims from Cass Business School. I'm hearing two slightly different things in what you're saying. I'm hearing about recovery, which for me means getting back to where we were and getting the party going again. I'm hearing also, I think this is from you, John, things are going to be different when we come out, and I'm, I think we just heard that from Alistair as well. Um, and there's been a lot of talk about how we might move, be moving out into something rather different. So we seem to me to have a conflicted and confusing view about where we might be trying to go. And I'd be interested on the panel's comments on that, please. Uh, it's very simple. I, I, I doubt with as much uh, disagreement. It isn't going to go back to where it was. Um, that is gone. Um, people have been seriously frightened out there. When depositors in banks are frightened and they're frightened that they're not going to have any money, they are going to change their behavior. They will. The, change, the depression changed the American behavior and was in their psyche forever. Hyperinflation did the same in Germany. I'm not saying these, this event is as difficult as that, but going back to where we were, living on this huge cheap credit, uh, is not going to be I don't think, unless, unless the government decides that inflation is the way out of this long-term problem. Unless that. Uh, hello, I'm uh, Neil Stewart from Policy Review, which is a small business with less than 50 employees and a couple of million turnover. Um, 
one of the things that's, I mean, we talked about banker bashing. Um, I do quite a lot of work outside London, <clears throat> and people outside London are getting more and more angry with London, London financial centres, London government. You've got the leaders of places like Birmingham looking at setting up banks uh, because they don't have confidence. They're trying to mobilise their own resources because banks and others are not perceived to be lending. Um, so London's in trouble with the rest of the country and a real resentment that London centralised institutions, whether in finance or in government, have failed to respond. And I don't think the London policymakers understand how deep this feeling is. Secondly, um, for those of people who work around European institutions, you'll know that uh, the European Union refers to everything else outside London, north of Watford, and also most of the Irish economy, as peripheral areas of Europe. So if we do get a settlement in the future and we get a recovery, is it going to be for the whole of the UK, or are we really going to discover how marginal some parts of our country are? And my final point is about uh, the G20 in, uh, in the beginning of April. Um, I come from the generation, the sort of CND generation of the 80s, that was worried about mutually assured destruction in a nuclear age. All through the 90s, as we watched uh, the surpluses in the Eastern economies financing uh, some of the lending in the Western economies, it seemed to me that we moved to a kind of mutually assured financial destruction. Do you think the leaders of the world understand this and will be as focused on the 2nd of April that they either find a solution or they could mutually destroy one another's economies? John, do you want to talk about the, um, the question of regional imbalances and London centricity? I think you're dead right, Neil. I think there is, a, and we get this feeling from our members, and we're UK-wide, and you're quite right. There is a distrust of the city that can change like the wind, and uh, businesses, small businesses especially, do not like that. They like stability. They like to know where they're going. And what's been most upsetting is where, bank, where, where businesses have relied on banks. Over 20 years, we've got case studies where people have been, had a viable business over 20 years. And then suddenly the bankers come along and said, oh, we, uh, we're withdrawing your overdraft, or we are, we are going to make it very uh, difficult for you to continue. That gives a tremendously difficult message that says, hang on, we expect these clever people in the city to know what they're doing. And yet... They don't seem to know what they're doing. And that, you're right, Neil, there is a big, big feeling of that. And there is talk of different authorities. I think Essex have floated with the idea as well of saying, look, if the city can't look after the regions, then we better start looking after ourselves. So I think it is a real problem. Catherine, do you want to speak to that briefly? Because you've got to in touch with the no, national network. Absolutely, and I've heard that distrust too, very much so distrust of London. We're hearing it very strongly at a local level, and um, certainly at Barclays it's something we're working on. It doesn't mean we shouldn't address some of the collective problems. We might come on to remuneration issues like that centrally, but we also need collectively to do more locally to understand local issues. And certainly at Barclays, we have a series of local seminars uh, for businesses around how we can help each other, how banks can help more to get talking. But I think that's something that we could all feed into to help address some of those um, problems. I'll just take the last question. Don't expect too much from the G20, whatever the Prime Minister may be saying. I understand why he's saying that, but the Americans are solely focused 
on their own problems right now. Uh, um, they're not engaging with the Sherpas. You know, everything is about the American economy, the car bailout, the bank system. The G20 format is very unwieldy, very difficult to get an agreement. What you really need to be looking at is G2, America, China. And in that respect, what Hillary Clinton had to say last week, where never mind human rights, this is all about the economic management, was very interesting. Yeah, I just wanted to make a point. Um, we're not in the business of apologising for being successful. We work very hard to make London an attractive international centre for finance. People come, they come there. This is not London grabbing the rest of it. This is where people want to be and they want to centralise their activities. So there's no apologies for that. Of course we're going to get London bashing because it looks like there's a bunch of fat cat bankers and one understands that. But I will say this, the wealth effect that's come out from London to the rest of the country has been substantial over a long period of time and many small businesses have benefited from that. And our final thing, on a bank, we've discussed banks, uh, setting up our own bank, you're using other people's money to lend. Not free money, it's other people's. Have you got the expertise to be able to choose between the ones that will survive and the ones that will not go under? Thanks very much. Anne Spackman, comment editor at The Times. Um, the government has made its announcement about quantitative easing, printing more money. Do you think that printing more money and absorbing bad debt will actually increase public confidence? And if it won't, what will? Andrew, do you want to take that? Yes, it's... Um Let's not overstate this quantitative easing idea. There is room for the central bank to use its balance sheet constructively. So the, the, the Bank of England, as it's now doing, can buy government bonds. It could be involved in buying syndicated loans and you know, helping supply some credit to the economy. But the credit problems only be fully overcome when we have confidence back in the, in the banking system. Catherine, do you want to answer? I think confidence would be the key. But what do you need to do? What does the government need to do to restore confidence? You want to say something about communication? I think there's more communication probably needed from all of us. Banks need to communicate to their shareholders and their customers. The government needs to be uh, communicating more. And we need to be doing it in a, in a joined-up fashion rather than perhaps some of the ad hoc bashing that's gone on in the past. So a few more fireside, fireside chats open fireside chats. Good. Okay, at the back, the gentleman's been waiting. Thank you. I'm Stephen Herring from BDO. Um, I suppose I should start this question by saying that uh, I am someone who believes that um, crime wouldn't pay if the government ran it. Um, a lot of the comments in the papers and from economists, and indeed perhaps on the panel this morning, have talked about particular government remedies or government initiatives or government site trying to, uh, the national or the EU or the G20, uh, producing programmes to get us out of the position. But there seems to be considerably less talk about something that uh, I think might have more effect, which would be a very significant but substantial and limited in time framed cut in the taxation of business income which would mean that for a lot of entrepreneurs and no doubt FSE, FSB members, that more of the resources would then go to the more successful ones and they would themselves create more jobs and create the confidence. But there seems to be very little focus on letting those that are still being successful keeping more of the money rather than supporting those who, no doubt mainly through no fault of their own at the moment, have been less successful. Is that, John, do you agree with that? Uh, encouraging the government to look at 
um, different kinds of cuts of taxes and national insurance. Because I think that if you do that um, for both the employer and the employee, then it encourages both. Um, it encourages the em employer to take on more people. And I don't necessarily totally agree with you that if you're making lots of money, then you should pay less tax. I think there is a responsibility generally um, to the country. But I'm one of these people who believe in a half full glass. I think we'll come out of this recession. I think we'll probably learn lots of lessons from it. And I think when you look at the figures overall, yes, we might lose several good, viable businesses but there'll still be the majority of viable businesses still in existence after this recession. And there will be opportunities that, in fact, uh, people will take. And with regard to the, the previous question, I'd like to answer it. I think, yes, we're in an economic war. What did we do in the last war, the last world war? We did have to borrow. We, still had to, we did have to print money. We did have to keep the economy going. And therefore, I think it's a balance of actually, yes, printing some money because we need to actually stimulate the economy. Yes, we might have to pay it back over a period of the next 20 years. But the important thing is, is to get through this particular recession um, in the easiest way possible, uh, even though uh, we may leave some kind of a legacy. So I believe we should, in fact, print some money. Next question. Uh, we'll take the one at the back. Paul Rayburn, Fishburne Hedges. Um, has what's happened to the economy and the value of sterling made British membership of the euro more likely? Stuart. I have found no indication at all that uh, the stance of the UK government or anybody in this country has changed. I think for the smaller countries, Iceland was a wake-up call. But I think that uh, we still believe that we can do this on our, not on our own, because we're working with Europe. Um, but uh, you have to say is, there's been a huge competitive devaluation of our currency, um, which people see as good, which would not have happened in the Eurozone. I'm not saying for and against, but there's been no shift in my perception about our attitude about joining. Yeah, hi. Um, Ed Koch from Echo Research. Um, to what extent do you think, I mean, someone made the comment about one day that all oh, this will be a distant memory. To what extent do you think that consumers are prepared, either now or in the future, to forgive and forget the behaviours that have gone on in the past sort of six months, a year, from big businesses? I do think they will forgive and forget. I think we have seen a sea change in behaviour and we have to, have to collectively adapt to that. And also, as we structure regulation and so on, it needs to take account of that. So I do see a sea change. If that's true, can we still have uh, international British banks that are international in scope and also have an investment banking arm? I think we can. I think the model does survive. It does give, um, it does give benefits. It will be a different world, uh, but I think it can survive, yes. That means we've forgotten nothing and learnt nothing. No, I didn't say that. <laughs> um, What's the difference then? That's what we had. I think we will see a different structure of regulation. I think we will see changes in corporate governance. I, mean, I think we'll see changes in remuneration structures. Those are quite fundamental to how we do business. So I think lessons absolutely will be learned. I think the biggest problem in the investment banking industry was trying to poach business from commercial banks, borrowing short-term, lending long. That's where UBS, Merrill Lynch... Bear Stearns and the others lost an awful lot of money. Um, but I think that the danger for, for UK is, I think we, we, we don't want to lose sight of the fact that going forward 10, 15 years, banking or more generally financial services are going to be crucial to maintaining sta our standard of living. So if consumers are going to not for, uh, 
they don't have to forget, but they're not going to forgive the banking industry then we're, and don't allow politically things to, to be supported. We're all in deep trouble. Okay, in the middle and then to the right. Nick Rice from Financial Times Group. Um, some feel Barclays and other banks have been unfairly scapegoated in the light of their decisions about their bonuses in the middle of this recession. Um, how many of your colleagues, this is a question for the panel, below and at board level have decided to voluntarily waive their bonuses in the light of the shortage of money in the financial system? What's your attitude towards bonuses within your own organisations? Well, uh, I, I, I dearly wish that all of my members could afford bonuses, but I'm sure at the present time they would be struggling to survive, let alone actually pay bonuses. But they do try and properly compensate their staff for a proper day's work. And that's the important thing. I think if the, one of the small businesses is not succeeding then and they're losing money, they're usually very honest with their staff and say, I'm sorry, look, if you want to keep your job, I'm going to have to reduce your pay or get rid of you. Now, it doesn't seem to happen in the city that way, that if, in fact, you do a lousy job and your bank's going down, they say, oh, we better give you a bonus. Um, clearly, you'll have seen, seen the announcements at Barclays. Uh, bonuses for us are performance-related, so the executive directors at Barclays have got no bonus um, at all. Uh, so John Varley, zero bonus. Uh, for the rest of us, again, performance-related, you'll have seen the announcements, cuts of over 50%. In, in bonus levels, that's significantly more uh, than the fall in, in, in profits. But that doesn't mean that we espouse a culture where there's no bonus at all for a cashier who's done a good job against a balanced scorecard. That would be the wrong answer. Uh, Darren Kaplan, B12 Public Affairs. Um, you mentioned before on the regulation issue that, you know, what's changed? And actually, there's a major change that happened 11 years ago when you had the tripartite system of regulation, which basically meant that no one's actually responsible perceptually with the situation today so there has been a major change and you know who do you blame do you blame the FSA do you blame the Treasury do you blame the Bank of England who is actually responsible for this so going forward I don't think it's a case of and this is something Catherine French picked up of the level of regulation we have to have you know the end of light it's the end of light touch regulation but surely it's a case of the right kind of regulation as to the amount of regulation and having someone responsible heads should roll but we should know who, whose head should roll and at the moment we've got no one to blame Catherine, is the fractured nature of the British financial supervision a problem and does it need to be rectified? I think it has contributed to the problems. I think one has to be honest about that. But I think we're moving in the right direction. We will see a step up. We're already seeing a step up in the FSA, speaking as the recipient of it. Uh, we're already seeing a step up in the FSA's intensity of regulation and focusing on the right issues. I think the other key thing for me is absolute clarity as to the responsibilities of, of the individual institutions, as you say, the Treasury, uh, the Bank of England and the FSA. I think we're getting there, but it needs to bed in. So to paraphrase Tony Benn, was it an issue of personalities as much as... <laughs> I think it must have been a contributing factor, yes. Fine. And do you think that we need to change the uh, tripartite network system? Uh, it's changing. I mean, I think if, the answer to your question is, is go and look on the BBC thing from yesterday when uh, Lord Turner, is again, was giving evidence. He went through this. He said, we were to blame... We made mistakes. We are making a fundamental, huge fundamental restructuring of the system. So yes, but again, isn't this, a, isn't this who's to blame culture? Who's to blame? There must be somebody to blame. Well, and of course, there needs to be some accountability. No, accountability is fine. Is, but when I we, mean, that means yeah, some blame yeah. chain, does it not? Yeah, but then, as I say, 
how many people were to blame right the way across the board. So when you just single out mm. a regulator or a bank, you're missing the whole issue. And Turner's very good on this about the whole psychology about the fact was that we missed the big picture in regulation. We were so concerned with structures and pipe work in companies, we missed the big picture. He's very open about that. And that you do go through a learning curve. That's the whole point of life. Okay. <laughs> Can I just come back on that? Um, uh, well, that sounds like you're a White House journalist. <laughs> a supplementary or well, something. I'll be very quick, but if you had yeah, one do. body who was keeping an eye on what was going on, then yeah. they would maybe had an early warning system. If you have three bodies, then each body is leaving up to the other two to try and figure out what's going on. So there's a fundamental problem there. You need okay. one body responsible, surely. Just, just a brief very person. quickly, and then we've got a lady. I, the I, I used to work inside the Bank of England before the tripartite system, and the, the one memory I have of that is how poor was the communication between the supervisory department and the... the so you get the same problems within one organisation. Right. It just doesn't make any difference. Okay, we've got two questions. Thanks. It's Gideon Freeman from Lexington Communications. I have uh, two questions. One is... Whenever we hear um, uh, bankers speak, they talk about how they're lending more in 2000, they lent more in 2008 than in 2007. And whenever we hear small business representatives speak, they say it's impossible to get their overdraft, their overdraft extended or, or supported. So how do, how do the non-bankers and non-small business reps on the panel uh, explain that discrepancy? And my second question, and acknowledging that none of you are qualified to give financial advice, should I sell my OBS shares? <laughs> <laughs> If you haven't sold them already, <laughs> uh, lady in the front will take that question as well. Lisa Moya, I'm a, a small business consultant. Um, do you think there's enough, when you think about the governments bailing out, both the US and UK bailing out certain industries, do you think there's enough discernment between those that had a successful, sustainable business model and those that were failing anyway? What comes to mind is the US and to some extent the UK car industry. They Good. were in decline. Okay, thank you. Um, can we just write these questions down? And we're going to take one here and then one at the back and that's it. Uh, Adrian Monk from uh, the Journalism School at City University. I just wondered, we talked about the economic risks and financial regulation. Do any of the panellists see any broader political risks associated with this recession, stroke depression, stroke slump? No, we're not going to call it that yet. But Okay, the, the lady at the back. Joanna Elson from the Money Advice Trust. We're a charity that runs the national debt line and the business debt line, uh, which are helplines for people in financial difficulty, supported by Barclays and the government and other financial services companies. I wanted to take you back really to the hardest question, if I could. What we're finding for the people at the sharp end is that our advisors have got far fewer options to offer the people who phone up for their help. Um, as well as demand being uh, much, much higher than it's ever been, so in January our advisors helped 800 people a day, there were 1,600 people calling. Um, so as well as that demand, there are, it's actually harder to help them because if people have lost their jobs, if they can't sell their property, there are far fewer options. So I was really to take you back to the green shoots question, really, and say, you know, is there light at the end of the tunnel? I, I agreed with Catherine that, that first-time right. buyer a movement was likely to be a, a, a key one, but uh, is anyone seeing anything uh, that, that right. remotely resembles a green shoot? Great, okay. Um, green, any green shoots seen from the banker? I think in individual examples there are always a few green shoots but are we seeing a collective pattern of green shoots? I think it's too early for that yet. Okay, tin hat time still. Um, sustainable business models should be... Uh, the, uh, how do you... 
Would you answer I that can't question? really comment on the industry level, but absolutely at a, at a local individual business level, that's the decision we need to be make, and we need to be investing everything in the banks in getting that decision right, in understanding which is a company which has an unsustainable business model and which is a one which is a truly viable business, and that's something that we need to invest um, even more time in. We have done a lot to strengthen that, but we, we need to continue to do that. Okay, John, the question about um, banks lending to small businesses and credit flows. Well, I think uh, you may recall the Enterprise uh, Fund Guarantee that the uh, government announced where they were guaranteeing 75% of £1.3 billion. Um, and uh, as of today, uh, there's only been £50 million being uh, loaned under that fund. So there's a big gap. If you actually extend that over the whole year, it's not going to um, actually take up that £1.3 billion, which concerns the FSB because it's not happening. I think, can I just answer something on the no-blame philosophy? I think you're dead right. Yeah, I think that the time has gone to actually blame. Who, who, who's interested in who's, 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 who's to blame? We now need the fix, and we need to now look at what went wrong so we can make sure that it doesn't happen again as far as we can take precautions that it doesn't do that. But actually looking in the navel and saying, oh, it's a bank, so it's a government, oh, it's this, it's, oh, it's the economist or whatever, does it really matter? What we now to look at is say, in any no-blame philosophy, let's look at what went wrong and how we can make sure as far as we can that it won't happen again. Fine. Okay, political risks very briefly, Stuart, and then... Uh Alistair. Yeah, that's the major danger, obviously, if we are on a prolonged recession or depression, that there will be political extremes coming forward. And, of course, the history of the last depression created fascism and other areas. That is the bigger long-term risk. It will not then be economic. It will be very, very serious. But that is a very gloomy view. I mean, we hope we will come out of it well before that happens. Uh, Alistair? Yeah, I... Bankers are still better than government officials at deciding where capital should go, where lending should go. I'm not saying bankers are ideal at that job. They'll make many mistakes. But we are coming back to saying we have to support and strengthen the banking system. In return, it's going to be a different type of banking culture without extreme bonuses, etc. Okay, I'm not going to try and sum up this debate before handing over to Julia. I think probably the, the motto is we must not look back in anger. Uh, we, mu we need a few more good economists... Uh, <laughs> and some better journalism and some even better politics. Thanks. Thank you. Well, it was just to thank you again. Thank Lionel Barber. Thank the panellists and the sponsors. Cass have generously provided really one and a half breakfast because there's more where you left off. Um, the next event for members of the Insight Club, to which you are all invited to join, and I happen to have membership forms about my person. The next event, uh, somewhat uh, in a timely way, is on bonus culture. Uh, our speakers will include Martin Vanderwehr, the editor of Spectator Business, and we'll be doing that event in association with the Management Consultancies Association. So if you are interested in continuing that conversation, you must uh, come and join us. But for now, thank you and thank the panel. Thank you. Thank you.